listening to AI, the Law, and You, a show where a lawyer, a layman, and a technologist discuss the current state of AI in court filings and the court's response to those filings. These are not scripted talking points. What you'll hear are real conversations between Joel McMull, the lawyer, Shannon Leitz, the technologist, and Mark Miller, that's me, the layman. In today's episode, we discuss the confusion in the court system about the differences between AI and generative AI. We'll start with Joel giving a brief overview of the current state of AI in the courts. Today's court is now in session. So there are now probably, at least by my count, I want to say maybe in the neighborhood of a half dozen federal judges that have issued standing orders as it relates to the use of AI in court filings. There's no outright prohibition barring the use of, I'll say, generative AI. And that's one of the problems, actually, with the standing orders is that at least some of them don't distinguish between generative AI and AI. And that's an issue because there's a lot of sort of non-generative AI tools out there that are used every day that I think are really helpful. Putting that aside for a moment, these orders basically say that if you as a lawyer are going to be filing something, you are making a representation that to the extent that you used any AI tool, generative AI tool, that you vetted it. And that's another distinction. Some standing orders insist that the filer vet the sources. Others just simply say that the material has been vetted, meaning, I guess, implicitly that you could kick that over to someone else to do it. But the bottom line is the courts have said, some courts, and again, it's only a handful, but some courts have said, if you're going to use these materials, you're going to do so with the expectation that you have vetted them or that they have been vetted, meaning that you're not going to get hallucinations. We're not going to get some of those false citations that, of course, we've talked about a few times. Uh, The Schwartz case in the summer, most recently the issue with uh, Michael Cohen serving up to his lawyer a series of really specious citations. Fascinating. If lawyers are thinking like this or judges are thinking like this, and right now we're talking about what might happen from an adjudication standpoint, I I think it creates a bit of a tone that says we're not as trusting of Gen AI as maybe it's being perceived. I think it's fair to say that courts or some judges are looking at askance at the technology. You're absolutely right. And then what does that mean? I mean, Justice Roberts, at the end of his year, he gives sort of the court in review. I mean, he very generally talked about AI and how courts need to modernize and incorporate these technologies, while at the same time safeguarding against what we commonly refer to as hallucinations. One of the things that you brought up, Joel, I think is fascinating in that if there is no distinction in the courts between AI and generative AI, that's very big because that means they don't understand. Well, right. And you're right. And and they're conflating the two. And that's a problem because there's a number of AI tools out there that are non-generative AI tools that are very helpful. Shannon, then from a technologist standpoint, 
for people who are listening, what is the difference between AI and generative AI? There's a lot of differences, actually. AI specifically has a variety of algorithms that you can leverage and create different types of analysis. Generative AI is going to have the ability to take a look at patterns and be able to either replicate something or be able to generate something from the statistical information that it gathered from the original training data set. So the question is going to be, did you send in training data? What are you trying to get out of that from a decision standpoint? Most AI has decision logic it supports. Generative AI actually produces from that decision logic an asset or an artifact that it generates. And there's a couple of different articles out there about the differences between these and how they relate to human knowledge. I think that's the most interesting part of them. Creators can leverage more and more of the ideas from other people through this. And I think we're, while we're seeing lawyers really be fascinated by the technology, it's not a better search engine. And I think that's where we probably are the struggling the most is that AI can be useful in search engines, but generative AI was created for a purpose and it's being used in a variety of different innovative ways that I don't think it was intended to be used for. When I think of AI versus generative AI, AI itself is a data set, is the way I think of it. Whereas generative AI has the ability to make inferences from that data set. And that's where everybody's getting into trouble. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I, I think I have a, a sort of a dumber version of it that I think of in my mind, which is that generative AI, as the name generative would suggest, will create as Shannon said, an asset or an artifact. And it's really that, I mean, notwithstanding perhaps the sloppy language or the lack of specificity in some of these standing orders, if you look at them, it's really that that courts are concerned with. I don't think they're concerned with, they're concerned with the Schwartz, the the, the, the Schwartz scenario or the scenario involving Michael Cohen. That's what they're fix, fixated on. And I think rightfully so. And the, anal the, the, um, the analogy courts are making uh, because some people are saying, to your point, how can a court instruct a lawyer as to how he or she is to do their job, right? That just, how is that appropriate? And the analogy that's being drawn is we have something in the federal courts called Rule 11, which basically means that this is essentially a rule that says you as a lawyer have essentially vetted this claim or your argument that you're submitting to the court, and you're not submitting it for an improper purpose, such as to delay the proceedings, harass the other side, or otherwise have them engage in unnecessary expense. With every filing we make in federal court, it, it implicitly is that representation that's baked into Rule 11. And judges are saying what we're asking for here in the way of a certification is effectively akin to that, that you have taken responsibility to ensure that the sources that you're relying on that may be a byproduct of generative AI in fact, really are the quote unquote real McCoy and need to be vetted against, I guess, traditional print publications or I guess more recently Westlaw and other online databases that are available to us as lawyers. Right. Shannon, you got a quizzical look on your face when I, I gave my distinction. You got a problem with that? <laughs> I, a little bit. You said you felt that AI was a, a data set and 
that generative AI is an inference. And, and I think it's not quite that. AI represents a model, a decision model, effectively. Put data in, you make a decision. It's trying to replicate human logic, basically. We all go out, look for things, learn things, decide about those things. And then to your point, we can infer them. In some cases, as we learn how to do things, it might be something where we create based on a statistical style of someone else. The fact of the matter is AI is really trying to mimic human capability and logic through what is a computer-based algorithm and from some input, be able to leverage that model to make decisions and then provide an output. And I think it's getting it down to those simple basics is really the way I think about it. And from a generative standpoint, the data you put in is a bunch of created works could be books, could be paintings, could be graphics. And what you get from that is the algorithms may look at those things, may crawl them. And what they produce is essentially, and they talk about words being tokens. When this word shows up, it's closely linked to this other word more often in human language. So therefore, every time you're asking about something, these are the words that are most likely used, and I can fashion some sort of constructed language if I'm producing a, a text-based output. If it's an image, it could be taking the pixels that are associated with those images and putting them back together in a, a way that actually would be more closely aligned with what an original image would look like. And so that generation quality is interesting. Where I'm always confused from a lawyer perspective is why on earth? Would a lawyer use generative AI, which can be, you know, moved to a highly precise or not so precise level, but most people don't even understand it. But why would they use it for the things they're trying to use it for? It just was never fashioned to produce a um, connection to your point inference between this is the problem. What's all the case law that could be used to make a decision about this particular issue? It just wasn't fashioned that way. So like I said, I, I really feel sometimes that where the problem comes from that we're seeing, especially with lawyers, is that they just don't understand the technology. And they don't understand it, but yet they're enticed by the corners it cuts, right? That's the attraction. It's an attractive nuisance. Are you guys using it, Joel, at the office? So here's the thing, and I think I may have mentioned this. We are, and I don't know if it's been done. I know that we've talked internally about devising a policy with the idea being that we would hand it to young associates because th they strike me as being the most vulnerable under the various pressures that young associates have in terms of meeting deadlines that are both internal and external. I don't know if we've actually done that. I actually have a meeting after this one with our technology group, and I'll ask the question. But I think I mentioned this too. I, you know, if you want me to share my screen, I'll show you. I just on the front of Westlaw now, they offer, they offer an AI engine right on the splash page that says, ask your legal research question with more detail for better results. And it talks about it's welcome to Westlaw's AI assisted research. I've had mixed results with it. And I suspect that is also a function of my inputting, which is probably less than stellar. So I'm still a fan of sort of classic Boolean searching terms and connectors, that sort of thing. I, that's what I grew up with. And I, I still think these days I have 
a good amount of success with it. One of the things that it reminds me of in a funny way is like when anything new pops up, like whether it's COVID or whether it's AI, all of a sudden you've got 10,000 experts on Facebook who know everything about AI. And then as soon as the next thing comes, those 10,000 people are jumping on their experts in that. And in this case, it seems to me that as we're going to be walking the floor at major conferences this year, you're going to see exactly what Westlaw is doing. They're going to be using the terminology, but is it really true what they're saying that they're doing? And, and I think this is technology-wise where I start to understand a little bit more of the differences behind the scenes is that what is being produced from the standpoint of Westlaw for lawyers was in the works for quite some time before even the generative stuff came out. and. I think there's confusion between what that box on Westlaw represents versus, say, asking ChatGPT, can you provide me legal precedent? That's an interesting and, distinction. And, yeah. and the reason I bring that up is because Westlaw has done all the work of indexing and training the data and really putting the work into the training data set. This is why there's a difference between LLMs and some folks are now starting to talk about SLMs, small language models versus large language models. I think understanding the technology a bit more is something to be um, observant about. And this is where I feel like the, the courts themselves should get some training on the differences between generative AI and AI. Otherwise, you're going to end up throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I think the Westlaw adaptation is actually pretty nice. To Joel's point, maybe it, it hasn't really reached that level of usefulness at this point and that they have some more work to do in terms of value. But I would be it would be interesting to see what use cases they would actually leverage generative AI for. I could imagine for a moment that to Joel's point, maybe they could use it for producing a better Boolean algorithm for what he might be searching for and taking his question and really fleshing it out. That might be a generative AI use case for lawyers. Another one would be taking how you might write um, court documents. You've already written, you know, a dozen or so of them. You can start to leverage those and, and generative AI can be um, tweaked from a small language model to help you with your own writing. That could be an uh, interesting use case. But to go find precedent, to make inferences, I think that's just far outside of the technology. That's well stated. Agreed. Joel, I see you working on something there. Yeah, I'm just, and I'm just trying to illustrate something. Like, this is a relatively easy search. And by the way, using Boolean searches, I could have come up with this answer about two minutes ago. It's the more difficult stuff that it struggles with. So when we're looking at this is it your assumption that Westlaw is using AI without generative AI? It's hard to know just looking at this. I'd have to play with it a little bit more to get a sense of it. But what I see here is they've got a data set that they've enriched pretty heavily that then has the ability for them to potentially use it from a token spacers and pull it back. I still don't believe that they would be using generative AI to produce the connectivity between what Joel typed in and what they produced. It's likely more um, an algorithm of matching search and crawling features 
to what the questions are. And, and still, there's probably a few things here I'm, I'm missing, only because I don't have my hands on the tech. But I do think that it's very likely there's an actual algorithm that they have produced that's proprietary to how they've seen lawyers search the database that's creating the decision of what to produce and, and what would be most useful. It's and I can't imagine... I'm sorry, I can't imagine that this was a difficult, this was not a difficult step. This was a logical step for Westlaw. Shannon mentioned it. It already is slicing and dicing its data. You know, it, it has the key site formulation, which is where it tags issues. And so this was just a natural outgrowth. I'm not suggesting it was easy by any means, but they had all of the, I think they had all the foundational pieces at their fingertips in a way that if you're not organized in the way that Westlaw was, I would imagine making sense of some of these same materials, I think, would have been very difficult. I, I want to actually just say something, too, which I think is important. There is a tone, and I'll use your word, Shannon, the tone that the courts are using when they're looking at the use of AI, and, and it, certainly it's a negative one, right? If it's not an outright prohibition, they are trying to restrain, uh, at least in some way, the use of AI, or at least ensure that it's not going to be used improperly. That's fine. But there's a flip side to this, which is, you know, and the assumption we make is that lawyers are representing people and businesses, and that's not always the case. In other words, let's take the pro se litigant who's acting on their own behalf. I think in that case, generative AI can be very valuable to them, particularly with those without any legal background. And I think it's a good starting point for, it's a democratization of law, if you will. And I think it could be a very good starting point for people without a background in law to at least be able to leverage some of these resources and make arguments that they otherwise would not be able to. I'm not disagreeing with that. If you were to feed in a template of some of the filings to help and assist a pro se person, I, I think that could be very useful. What I'm actually saying is I cannot imagine using generative AI, just feeding all the cases in the world into generative AI and having it produce something that's going to make the courts happy, that it would actually be the connected cases. And in some cases, what's happening is it's actually creating fictitious cases. And so what's happening is it's generating new court cases, predicting the statistical alignment of these and then basically saying, if this fictitious uh, case came forward, it would be a line more likely to the cases that already exist. That's essentially how generative AI is not really helping the last couple of folks we've talked about, is that it effectively generated cases that don't exist. And it, it does that because that's how the technology was built in the first place, is it's supposed to create things that right. don't exist, right? It's supposed to create right. the next new novel thing. And this is why we're having conversations about copyright because is that something now that's next new and novel that you need to protect? I actually think, and I'm just going to say in the last few weeks, I've been watching this area really closely. What I'm seeing right now is that if the courts don't fix it, you're starting to see interesting new hacking tools emerge because the hackers are starting to realize what they might be able to do with AI. And some of those tools could also equally be used by creators to protect themselves from having their data slurped into a training data set and generated into new and novel works off of their stuff. I, I think we are seeing some really interesting economic, to your point, last time we had talked, the market might correct. I'm 
seeing that it may actually do that, Joel, but it may not be in the way we actually want. First of all, you nicely articulated the tension, I think, that is embedded in generative AI tools as it relates to at least the law or use within the legal profession and what it was designed to do. And of course, one of the reasons why judges are so, I think, taken aback or why people are so concerned about the false use of, sorry, the false hits, if you will, with respect to generative AI is that the entire notion of it's built on legal precedent, right? So the creation of fictitious cases are so problematic because it goes against the very heart of what uh, of our legal process, which is given similar facts, what is a prior outcome? So that's why these hallucinations, I think, are so problematic, particularly in the legal field, where it necessarily looks backwards and has a historical assessment in deciding, or it looks back historically in deciding what it's going to do in connection with the case presented to it contemporaneously. That adjourns our session for today. If you enjoyed the conversation, you can pay for our services by subscribing on your favorite podcast platform. We're always open to hearing about new case filings. There's a link in the show notes where you can leave a comment on something you'd like us to look at. AI, The Law, and You is a Sourced Network production. See you in court.